So we are at part three of Catholicism. We're going to end this bad boy. Um, I was hoping to get done within two weeks with Catholicism, but there's just a lot to cover with Catholicism. There's just a ton. And then uh, next Wednesday, we're not going to have class in here. We have the unified prayer service, prayer meeting service. Um, So we're going to be in the main service at 630 uh, doing a unified prayer time. And then the following week, uh, Rick is going to be taking the reins and he's going to be teaching through Judaism. And so he's going to be taking that one and talking about Judaism. And and what I love about that is that the last time we did Judaism, there's a lot of things that we discussed that many of you were like, I had no idea. And I'm like in the Bible. <laughs> but it's interesting. It's very complex. And so I think it'll be a really an eye-opener to you guys as to some of the things uh, with uh, the Jewish faith um, and other things that are not necessarily written in the scriptures that will definitely open up your guys' eyes to that one. So let's go ahead and finish out Catholicism. So just as a very, very quick review, we talked about how Constantine was the founder. Um, there's a lot of miscommunication and misinformation with the Roman Catholic Church. There's a lot of people that think that who's the first pope? Peter. Peter. But was he? No. no. Who's the first pope? Leo. Leo. Good old Leo. Leonardo. So Pope Leo the Great, and remember what the year was? No. No. 26. No. No. There was a 40 in there. 440. So you're just a little off, a little off. Yeah. All right, so in 440 AD, that was the first pope. But if you go and research it, the, the Roman Catholic Church will put together a timeline that will show you the succession from Peter all the way through. But the thing is, is that there was not a central recognized Roman Catholic leader until 440. I mean, there was Constantine, and he was probably the closest one as far as because he led the whole empire. So if you want to look at it, from history, from the history perspective, it was Leo the Great, but you could make an argument that Constantine was the first pope. You really could. Um, but anyways, founded by Constantine, and what did Constantine do? Yes, he took paganism. It was in Rome and Christianity, and he married them together. And some of the things that he did to marry them together was holidays. That's a big one. Like the stuff that we celebrate for holidays, like Christmas and Easter are actually Roman pagan holidays. I don't know if you knew that, but it's totally true. Just look it up. Um, what else was there? Yep, he paid converts. So become a Christian and I'll give you money. You might not imagine how many people we could have coming to our church if we did that. <laughs> but imagine what kind of people we'd have coming to our church if we did that. And that's the point. That's the point. Is that he did things like that and all of a sudden it started ending up this huge melting pot of all these things and people believe pretty much whatever they want. So you had these people that were coming to faith in Christ, but not really. They were still holding on to their pagan traditions. And there's a whole lot of other things that he did. One of the big ones that we talked about was on page four... On page four of your guys' notes from the previous week, and if you don't have it, that's fine. I'll just read it to you. Um, The whole structure of the church, it's called the magisterium of the church. Um, When you look at it, the Roman Catholic Empire, it's got its own place. What is that place? Vatican City. Okay, Vatican City. And Vatican City is its own sovereign nation. Now, what does that mean? Something that's its own sovereign nation. Yep. It has its own government. Yep. Has its own currency. Has its own land. Has its own everything. What's that? Has its own flag. Yes, it does. 
Oops. Its own colors. Yeah, it's got it's got its own stuff. Like it's its own. It's the only place in the entire planet where you have a religion that has its own country, has its own city, has its own emperor, its own pope. It's all in one, and it's in one place. So it's pretty crazy to think about that. So when they did that and they set everything up, the emperor took on the same role as what the pope takes on. The senate that they had in Rome became the cardinals. The imperial governors became the archbishops. The provincial governors became the bishops. And the civitas, or the mayors, became the priests. And we talked about that's why in, um, you know, if you study history, if you've seen any old movies or whatnot, you would always have towns. But within the town, there would always be a Roman Catholic church and there would always be a priest. There was always one priest for every town. And it's just ironic that it always worked that way. Uh, but that's what they did. They kind of set up the church uh, after a pagan, uh, pagan Rome. All right. So we wanted to talk about that. And, uh, and then we talked about the whole roles within the church and the offices that were actually set up. And we hit that. All right. So. Now, this is what I want to do. Um, I wanted to show you guys this really quick. So I'm going to break away from this for a second. Uh, there is a sh very short video that I wanted you to see that I found on YouTube because we're going to be talking about the seven sacraments. And within the seven sacraments, I wanted you to see this because this was made by people that are Roman Catholic. And uh, what they ended up doing... Oh, of course they switched everything up on me. Um, there we go. What now? I know. I know. Me too. Okay. <laughs> All right. I think it's within the library. And no. 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 Be under illustration. For your health. I know. For your health. Okay. Illustrations. No. That's not what I wanted. I want to get in there so I can pick a video. What the heck? Why did they have to switch things up on me? Try the try the skip menu just gonna be. Here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna do this instead. We're gonna do this instead. Un momento, por favor. New dark theme. Anyone like the dark theme on YouTube now? Yeah. Ooh! <laughs> All right. I know. Father Mike. Father Mike. Where are we at? Illustrations. Now, I did have one from Father Mike, but we're not going to watch his. I know. We just don't have enough time. But this one's called The Seven Sacraments. It's only 2 minutes and 38 seconds long, so I wanted to show you guys this one. It is matured at confirmation. Your soul is healed in reconciliation. Your body is healed in anointing of the sick. Families are made with marriage. The church is sustained with holy orders. And Christ is present in the Eucharist. The sacraments are what Christ did on earth. Christ told us we must be born of water and spirit to enter his kingdom. 
He desires us to receive his Holy Spirit. He forgives the sins of his children. Christ wants us to live in peace and to be cured of our ailments. He brings two people together and makes them one flesh. He called Peter to be our first Pope and the apostles our first leaders. And he gave his flesh and blood to be received. Everything he did, he still does in the sacraments. Three sacraments give us the grace we need to be holy in this life and spread the gospel to the world. Two sacraments heal us when we are wounded, either in body or in soul. Two sacraments are directed towards the salvation of others, sacraments of vocation. The seven sacraments of our faith, the sacraments nourish our faith. They are not just to be received, they are to be celebrated. They are to be lived. We receive them in here, so Christ can be known out there. Okay, I wanted you to see that. The answer to the question of how Christ saves is to be found in the sacraments. I wanted you to see that. Mm -hmm. Because that is what the Roman Catholic Church believes. And so as we spend time working through the sacraments, that's the biggest thing that I want you to take away from this. People are not saved through Christ alone. By faith through Christ alone, like it says in Ephesians chapter, where? Two. Two. Got a one in six chance. <laughs> Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Okay? So, and you could look up every reference that they mention for every part of the sacraments, and you find out that they take a lot of this completely out of context. Um, and how they even mentioned, you know, how Peter was even the first pope and all that kind of stuff. We don't have time to do that tonight. But this is what I wanted you to see. I wanted you to see how they portray it, how they look at it, and then this is the bottom line. Christ saved, Christ saves is to be found in the sacraments. Okay? So I wanted you to see that. All right, everybody got that one? All right. So now, come on now. Where are we at? Let's do this back to our PowerPoint. Okay. So with that then, as we try to finish out Catholicism, we're going to be talking about the sacraments, okay? So here's the deal. The first thing I need to tell you guys is what a sacrament is. Is there anybody that can give me a good definition of a sacrament? What is a sacrament? It's not something we use that often. Okay, kind of. All right, let me give you the, the, dic the dictionary definition of it, all right? So this is it. It says, it's an outward and visible sign of inward and spiritual grace. A religious ceremony by which their special relation to Christ is created or their commitment to him is renewed or ratified. Okay? So, do we do sacraments here at the church? It's like a little puppy dog hearing a strange noise. I don't know. Do we? Yes, we do. We do. There's two of them that we do out of the seven. Communion. Baptism and communion. Now, when we read this definition, let me just tell you, there's part of this that applies to us and part of it doesn't. So let me read this to you. A religious ceremony by which their special relation to Christ is created, we do not believe that. We do not believe that our relationship to Christ is created through baptism or communion. 
But we do believe the second part, their commitment to him is renewed or ratified. We do believe that part. So every time we go to like communion this Sunday, we're having communion. It's the Lord's table. We do this in remembrance of him. So our commitment to him is renewed. We think about what he did for us upon the cross and it causes us to want to walk holy in our life and to do what he's told us to do and walk in the will of God, right? So there's nothing wrong with that. But our relationship to Christ is not created through communion. Just wanted you to get that, okay? So this definition is both Catholic and Bible believer. It's just smashed into one. So I wanted you to, to know that. Okay, so let's talk about baptism first. And I wanna, we're going to go through this. We're not going to be able to hit everything and every point because there's seven of them and we just don't have the time to do it. But I want you guys to get the gist of this. I want you guys to get the feel for it. We're going to look up a few references in relation to it. But I wanted to give you guys this because this is probably the most comprehensive thing that you could possibly get your hands on related to the seven sacraments. Most Catholics will not be able to tell you what you actually hold in your hand. But I wanted to give this to you, especially with each of these sacraments, this first part in quotes. This is straight from the Roman Catholic Church. So I'm not mincing any words. There's no bias here. This is what they say they believe. And most Catholics will not be able to tell you what they actually believe. So you might be able to educate them. Um, All right. So the first thing is baptism. Baptism is big. It is big to a Roman Catholic. So this is what it says. The fruit of baptism or baptismal grace is a rich reality that includes forgiveness of original sin and all personal sins, birth into new life by which man becomes an adoptive son of the Father, a member of Christ and the temple of the Holy Spirit. By this very fact, the person is baptized the person baptized is incorporated into the church, the body of Christ, and made a share in the priesthood of Christ. So that's what they believe. So they believe by their own words that when someone is baptized, it removes what's called original sin, which is the sin passed on from Adam. Anyone know that reference? Romans 5.12. Romans 5.12. There's sin that's passed on from generation to generation. Catholics call that original sin. We don't use that term because Catholics have stolen that. But if you were to say that there's sin passed on from generation to generation, that would be what they're referring to. And all personal sins and birth into the new life. So they actually believe a person is born again through baptism, right? That's what it says. Okay, so here's the deal. Here's the deal. So what Catholicism believes, baptism is essential for salvation because through this event, God graciously grants forgiveness that purges original sin and all personal sins. Baptism normally takes place as an infant, but it can be done for any person converting to Catholicism. So that's true. So like, let's say next week you want to become Catholic. You would have to be baptized. You cannot become a Catholic without being baptized. And you cannot partake in any of the other sacraments unless you are baptized first. And then it says most baptisms are done by sprinkling or pouring holy water on the forehead, but it can also be done by immersion. And this sacrament is the first step of dispensing God's grace on an individual for salvation. Let me show you another picture here. So this would be a baptism of a baby where they pour what's called holy water onto the forehead of the baby. And then you had this poor lad who ended up becoming Catholic and, but it's the same thing. So this this what they have here, this tub that they have there up front or in some it's in the back. Like I know the church that Andy used to go to, it's in the back. So they do it in the back. Uh, but the person would bend over and they would pour water on the head or the forehead of the person. Um, and there's some where they actually have a larger like tank or whatever you want to call it, uh, baptismal, where they would get in it. But then the person, the priest would end up taking water and pouring it on top of their head even though they're in it. So there's all sorts of ways that they could do it. But this is absolutely essential. If you do not get baptized, 
you are not a Catholic, you have not received the grace of God, and you will go to hell. That's what they believe. Because there's no erasing of this original sin that came from Adam. So it's critical. Okay, so when you take a look at what the Bible says, we already quoted Ephesians 2, 8, 9. Baptism is not needed for salvation. It's not. It is absolutely not. I mean, think about this on a practical term. So let's say, for example, I mean, okay, we'll use this example. This has always been a great one that I've heard. What about the thief on the cross? I mean, if baptism was essential to go to paradise, like Jesus was talking about, well, then he would have to been taken off the cross completely, and then he would have had to get baptized at that point in time. If baptism is that essential, then why don't you see that pattern in the scriptures? Because there are people that get saved, but then you don't ever see them baptized. You just don't see that. If it was that essential, God would have made it abundantly clear, and he did not. He didn't at all. So, Romans 10, we know this one. Go, go ahead and turn there. Because this is probably the clearest place in the scriptures where you can see what is required for a person to be born again. Romans 10, 9 and 10 and verse 13. Okay, Romans 10. Someone read 9, 10, and 13. Who's got that? Go ahead, Haley, you got it. This is very simple. So if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, so you believe who Jesus is, that he is the Lord, that he was God that came in the flesh, and that he did die on the cross for the sins of all mankind, and then he rose again the third day, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Those are the two things. You believe it in here, like you know that it's true in your heart, and you confess it. And you're like, God, you're right, I'm wrong. And then... With the heart man believeth unto righteousness, the mouth, with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Verse 13, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. There's nothing in here that says anything about baptism. If God would have made baptism that critical, then he would have said, That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, and be baptized, thou shalt be saved. That's what he would have said. But he did not say that. And right here, it's really clear. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto, with baptism, salvation. He didn't put that in there. So it's important that you see things like that in the scriptures. If it was that critical, God would have made it very clear. Because remember, 2 Peter 3, 9, what is that one? Yes, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. If God wants everyone to be saved, then he would have made it abundantly clear baptism is critical for a person's salvation. Very critical. Otherwise, God really doesn't care for people. So that's very important for you guys to get. So baptism is kind of like the gateway into salvation. Now, it is possible to be baptized as a Roman Catholic and then fall from grace and then lose your salvation. So even though a person can be born again, like they say, birth into new life, and their original sin can be erased, they still can get sin in their life that can condemn them to hell. It's totally possible. But that's their start to it, right? And it can start as a baby. 
So they can be baptized in their baby. And then as they move on in their life, then they move on to this next point, And that is confirmation. All right. So confirmation. Confirmation perfects baptismal grace. So baptism is not enough to save you. That's what it says. Confirmation perfects it. It perfects it. It is the sacrament which gives the Holy Spirit in order to root us more deeply in divine filiation, incorporate us more firmly into Christ, strengthen our bond with the church, associate us more closely with her mission, and help us bear witness to the Christian faith in words and accompanied by deeds. And so a candidate for confirmation who has attained the age of reason must profess the faith, be in the state of grace, that means they were baptized, Whenever they say that, that means that they were baptized and had the intention of receiving the sacrament and be prepared to assume the role of disciple and witness to Christ both within the ecclesial community and in temporal affairs. The essential rite of confirmation is the anointing of the forehead, anointing the forehead of the baptized with sacred chrism together with the laying on of the minister's hands and the words in Latin, be sealed with the gift of the Holy Spirit. In the Roman rite, the seal of the gift of the Holy Spirit in the Byzantine rite. Okay. So they make these statements, and now this is the process where they say you are sealed with the gift of the Holy Spirit. But yet you can also lose this salvation too. That's what doesn't really make sense to me. So this is what they believe. This typically takes place in a child is about 11 to 16 years of age. Confirmation classes must be attended where the doctrines of the church are taught, and a statement of faith must be written by the attendee. When the confirmation sacrament is administered, additional grace is given by God to the individual for further salvation. The Holy Spirit is also given through the confirmation process. And the confirmation ceremony also includes the individual's first communion. So they are not allowed to take part in communion until they have gone through confirmation. And that is called the Mass or the Eucharist. Now, this is crazy because if you've ever seen pictures of stuff like this, um, like I know my cousin's kids were um, confirmed. And it's especially freaky when it comes to girls. Have you ever seen that? In their confirmation dresses and things that they do. It's almost as if it's like a wedding. Like when you look at the girls when they go through confirmation, they're almost in their like little wedding dresses and they've gone through all this stuff and they take part in their first communion. Now we're going to get to this next in communion, but with the communion, it's the taking of the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. They believe in a what's called transubstantiation where during the process that the priest is doing his whole shindig that the wafer and the wine actually become the literal body and blood of Jesus Christ. So during this whole processional, this whole ritualistic thing that they do, you have little girls that are dressed in like wedding dresses where then they are taking their first communion where they're eating the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And that's what's happening. That's what they believe. And, and then, you know, they're saying that they're going to be part of this, the, like the Roman Catholic Church. And on top of that, they're also drinking wine, like fermented wine as well. So you kind of pull that all together, and it's, it, you just think about it for a second, and it's just a little odd. I mean, am I wrong on that? It's just, it's just a little odd. Like, I could not think of my daughter. I mean, she's eight. So that means in like three years from now, she could be doing this in a Catholic church. Like, I can't even picture that. Like, that's just, it, it, it just doesn't make any sense to me at all. And I've heard testimonies from people who have been a part of the confirmation process where they've gone through with that and they remember as a little kid learning all this stuff that I'm actually eating Jesus and drinking his blood and how weird that it was for them as a kid to even think that, that they were taking part in that process. 
It's just, it's very strange. But that's what they believe. And they believe that it gives them further grace by God that gives them further salvation. So here's a picture of that. This would be um, a guy. I saw this kid and I thought of Alex Sweeney. So Alex Sweeney, yeah, I didn't know you got confirmed. Um, but this is what, so they, they normally have this staff that he has, this thing here. Like that's always part of every picture that I saw. They always have that particular staff. You've got the family member that's behind the person that's being confirmed. And um, he's anointing him with uh, holy oil on his head. And he's going through the whole process of becoming Catholic. So it is very much an indoctrination process into the Roman Catholic Church. All right, so confirmation is not needed for salvation. Absolutely not. Christ never said anything about that whatsoever. Confirmation is not needed to receive the Holy Ghost. Uh, the Holy Spirit's very simple. Go to Ephesians 1. I go to this passage. This is my go-to passage for what the Bible says when it means to receiving the Spirit of God. Ephesians chapter 1. And 13 and 14. So I'm going to read that one. Can't. We got it. 13, 14. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. In whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession, until the praise of his glory. Okay. So what's required? You have to, according to verse 13, hear the word of truth which is called the gospel of your salvation. That's the, the whole story of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and how he died for the sins of the whole world. He died for your sins and mine. And he rose again from the dead, defeating sin and death. You hear the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and then you believe it, and then you're sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. Which simply means... That when you hear the gospel and you make a decision to believe it and you call upon the Lord to save you, like we saw in Romans 10, 13, the Spirit of God comes in and he seals you until the day that you die or the day the rapture happens. That is the redemption of the purchased possession. Because according to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we have been bought with a price. Remember that passage? I love that passage. What? Know ye not that your body is the holy temple? It's the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God, and you are not your own. For ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So when a person becomes born again, they are purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. And the evidence of that purchase, of that transaction, is the Holy Spirit moving in to seal you until the day you die. Or until the day the rapture takes place where you are redeemed. And you're taken up to heaven to be with God for all eternity. So when something is sealed until the day of redemption... If God seals it, can it be undone? No, it cannot. It's very simple. It's very easy to understand if you just work your way slowly through those two verses. And that's what's needed to receive the Holy Spirit. It is not complex. Once again, God is not willing that any should perish. He wants all to come to repentance. And God is faithful to draw every person to the knowledge of the truth after one has passed beyond the age of accountability. That is for sure. All right. So then you got the Eucharist. That's our third sacrament. And we've talked about that already. And so we've mentioned it a little bit here and there, but I wanted to show you this one. Look at the third paragraph here. It says, By the consecration, the transubstantiation of the bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ is brought about. 
Under the consecrated species of bread and wine, Christ himself, living and glorious, is present in a true, real, and substantial manner, his body and his blood, with his soul and his divinity. That was said at the Council of Trent, um, and that is one of their big, big things that they have, one of their big councils that define some of their major, major doctrines. So that is what they believe, that in that moment, that there is a process that takes place where that wafer and that wine literally turn into the body and the blood of Jesus Christ and that you have to consume Jesus in order to have more grace in order to be saved. Okay? All right. Sounds strange, but that is what they believe. And they completely take out of context John chapter 6 in order to prove that. And then the last paragraph, it says, Communion with the body and blood of Christ increases the communicant's union with the Lord, forgives his venial sins, and preserves him from grave sins since receiving the sacrament strengthens the bonds of charity between the communicant and Christ. It also reinforces the unity of the church as the mystical body of Christ. So, we've already talked about what they believe. When the wafer and the wine are consumed during the Mass, the elements are literally transformed to the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Participation in the Eucharist grants the individual additional grace from God for the absolution of sin and furtherance of salvation. So what does the Bible say? Participating in a communal mass is not required for salvation. It's not. It's very simple. Go to Romans 1. Go to Romans 1 for this one. Romans 1. Romans 1, 16 and 17. It says... For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God and salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. So, the gospel, the gospel of Christ is the power of God into salvation, not participating in a mass. And as a side note, which I know Catholics would argue with this one, consuming blood, also called cannibalism, is condemned by God in Acts 15, Genesis 9, and Leviticus 17. So I don't know how they get away with that. Um, on top of that, in John chapter 6, where it says, where he says, you must eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. Jesus did say that, but later on in the passage, he says, the words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. So he even says, what I just told you was not literally, it was spiritual. So he even qualified it himself. And why would Jesus contradict the Old Testament? It just doesn't make any sense. Why would he even do something like that? Okay, and so here's a, a picture I wanted to show you. So this is, uh, I think this is Pope Benny, um, as he was, you know, doing a special prayer, uh, turning the wafer and asking for God's blessing for it to turn into the body of Christ. Um, and then you have those cups there that have the napkins or the handkerchiefs on top. Those would be the wine that would be transforming into the blood of Christ. And then this is a picture of a first communion of a little girl um, as she is receiving the wafer from the hand of the priest and is going to drink the wine from him as well. So, wanted to show you those. It's a little creepy. Okay, so there's that. Uh, number four, penance. Penance. So, I'm going to just describe this one overall. So, penance. So, basically, when you sin, there are two degrees of sin as a Catholic. You have venial versus mortal. So, at the bottom of your page, you've got mortal ones. Mortal sin requires full knowledge and complete consent. It presupposes knowledge of the sinful character of the act. 
of its opposition to God's law. It also implies a consent sufficiently deliberate to be a personal choice. So mortal sins are things that you know full well that you are about to sin against God and you just do it anyway. Okay? And then you have venial, venial sins. One commits venial sin when, in a less serious manner, he does not observe the standard prescribed by the moral law or when he disobeys the moral law in a grave manner but without full knowledge or without complete consent. So ignorance. So sins of ignorance. So things that you didn't realize what you did or it was a mistake and you didn't realize that it would be violating God, those would be the venial sins. Now, in the Catholic Church, mortal sins are a big deal. Like mortal sins send you to hell. They erase the grace that you've been given by God, and they will send you to hell. Venial, it's kind of like, ah, I get it. Not a big deal. Just pray these certain prayers, and then you'll be let off the hook. But as far as the other ones, you knew full well what you were doing, and there's more things you need to do. There's greater acts of penance that you need to take in order to absolve some of your sins. And so that's, that's how they kind of summarize the whole thing. So what they believe, penance is an individual's way to absolve sin, and it must be done through the confession of the sins to a priest Com, uh, completion of certain acts of penance often given by the priest during confession and anything else necessary to restore oneself and make it right. This is another dispensing of grace for salvation. Acts of penance, especially indulgences, can also be done to help release souls stuck in purgatory. Um, so indulgences was something that was made up by the church uh, a while ago, the Roman Catholic Church, where there are certain sins that you could uh, pay money towards in order to absolve that sin. And I've shared stories with you before about this one. I remember in the Philippines when I was going by this one basilica that had the black Jesus. It's one of the big things that they that they have over there that like everyone, if you go and you want to see something, like that's one of the things that you see when you're in Manila was the statue of the black Jesus. And what they would do, and we walked the line, they would have a line that wraps completely around the whole basilica and you would walk in and you would go up around the back side of the black Jesus statue and people um, were, like, if they had their purses or bags or whatever, and they would take, like, handkerchiefs or napkins or different things, and they, they would have a little hole that was cut out at the bottom of the statue because it was all encased in, like, plexiglass. And they would take their napkin or their handkerchief to, to put it in there and to rub the foot of the black Jesus and then put it back in their purse or in their pocket, and they would take it home, and they would take the handkerchief and rub it on the uh loved ones like ailment or their head or their like if they had something wrong with their with their stomach or whatever and they would believe that that would somehow help to heal them in the process and there's stuff that they would do like that all the time but while we were there before you went in to the basilica to wrap around and go to the back side of the black jesus there was a uh, almost like a booth that was set up and there was no one there but there was a booth that was set up and it had a chart up top that had a list of sins and it had a um uh, an amount of money you could pay for this particular sin. So if you were to go and like, you know, go gambling or whatever, you could go and then you could take your winnings. And then you could, <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> that was very disrespectful, um, but true. Uh, you could go and you could pay that and that would absolve what you just did. And they had all sorts of stuff like that. But the sad part is people actually believe this stuff. They actually believe this is part of their faith and this is what they need to do. And it's all part of our human nature that there's things that we feel like that we should do in order to make up for our sin. Instead of realizing, no, we're hopeless and helpless. And if it weren't for the grace of God, we would have no hope. There's nothing you and I can do that can absolve our sins. There's absolutely nothing. Yeah, Jamie. In Ireland, when we went to Pope, yeah. um, when we went to that really big, um, yeah. really weird, like the bishop's seat and all that stuff. Yeah. Weird, like, um, at the church. There were like people lined up at that table. 
table, all lighting candles and like dropping like money like left and right to pay for their ancestors or their loved ones who died to try to get them like out of purgatory because yep. they thought they were stuck there. Yep. That was like the saddest thing. Yeah. Yeah, it, it really is. It's like, it's like you own like your family's salvation on your shoulders. Like it's, they're like taking their burden and like yeah. trying to absolve it themselves. Yeah. And what it really does is it keeps that family further entrenched in the Roman Catholic Church. Because then they feel like if I walk away, then I'm forsaking my loved ones who have died and not doing my part to help them get to heaven. Mm-hmm. So it's very, it's very manipulative, frankly. All right, so what does the Bible say about penance? Penance is not required for salvation. Acts 4.12. Anyone know that verse? <clears throat> for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Penance is not required for salvation. A confessing sins to a priest and or a human works cannot be done to erase or absolve personal sins. Absolutely not. That's not what the Bible says. Just look up Isaiah 64, 6, 59, 2, Philippians 3, 9, Romans 3. There is not a sin severity level. While some sins have greater consequences than others practically, in the eyes of God, all sin is just as severe and deserves the sentence of death. Acts of penance cannot be done as a substitutionary act for others to receive grace. That would be the indulgences, paying indulgences. And purgatory does not exist. The Bible only speaks of Abraham's bosom or paradise, uh, heaven and hell, the bottomless pit, and the lake of fire, which if we have time at the end, which we don't, um, we'll talk about that. (laughs) All right, because that was one you guys always want to talk about. Okay, and the number five, anointing the sick. So... Uh, just in summary, we can just flip, you can read that part of what the Catholic Church teaches, but I have the summary on the next page, page 9. Uh, this sacrament is also called Last Rites. It's another dispensing of God's grace upon those that are suffering the consequences of sickness and or old age that will most likely lead unto death. So I want to show you this picture here. Um, this is with the penance. Uh, yeah, I want to show you this one for penance. So this is something that Catholics made up for penance. So you have to examine your conscience, be truly sorry, have purpose of amendment, confess your sins, and accept your penance. So whatever the priest tells you to do, that's what you need to do. And that's how you end up absolving yourself of that particular sin. And that's a picture of some people that are confessing their sins to a priest. And then this is a, uh, a picture of an elderly woman who is receiving the sacrament of last rites. Um, and so it, it, she doesn't have to necessarily be on her deathbed, but let's say, let's say she has a complication where they don't expect her to live for about another year. Then she would be brought in, or maybe the priest would go to the nursing home or to the hospital, and they would, they would perform this particular sacrament. And um, if people die without receiving that sacrament, then that's an issue where they would be in purgatory uh, more than likely, I mean, you'd have to, a priest would have to tell the family that that's where the person's at, and there's certain things they would have to do in order to get that person out of purgatory. So that's, that's that whole um, shindig. All right, so what does the Bible say? Anointing the sick does not absolve sins. It does not. Um, there's no way that it can. Only Jesus Christ can forgive sins. Uh, the only preparation one can do for death is to be covered by the blood of Christ. That's all you can really do. And that can happen at any point in time. I've been in circumstances where people have been literally on their deathbed and they've received Jesus Christ right then and there. And hey, all right, that's all they need to do. Um, The problem for some people is they think they're going to have that chance in the end when God doesn't. I mean, you have no idea. I mean, death could be quick and over and done with or it can be very prolonged. We have no idea. So no one is guaranteed to have that moment right before they die. And then sickness, life, death, and unforeseen difficulties are matters that are completely in the hands of God. In the moment, 
It may be hard to see God's reasons, but one day everything will be made clear when it comes to those issues. All right, and then the next two, uh, holy orders. So this is basically the process through which a priest is commissioned and ordained and appointed within the Roman Catholic Church. And uh, we'll just go to the summary. Holy orders is another dispensing of grace upon an individual unto salvation. This sacrament is an ordination of people into the various leadership roles within the Catholic Church. Uh, and what the Bible says is an ordained individual does not receive grace unto further personal salvation. So just because I have the role of a pastor, which is one of two offices in the church, does not mean God likes me any more than you. He just doesn't. It's not like I somehow have God's favor more than you do. No, that's not how it works at all. At all. Not at all. There's just, just a certain job that I have within the church, and it's my responsibility, and I need to fulfill it. Just like you have your own responsibility within the church that you need to fulfill. Mine just is more visible. And it's just one of the offices of the church. There are only two offices of leadership in the church. The bishop, also known as the elder or the pastor, and the deacon. So as you compare 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 and Acts 20, you'll find out that those are the only two offices in the church. Pastors are under shepherds that feed and take care of God's flock. And that says that in Acts 20 and in 1 Peter chapter 5. All right, and then matrimony. Getting hitched. All right, so when you get hitched in the Catholic Church, you receive additional grace that furthers your salvation. So that motivates people to get married, by the way. And Catholics also do not believe in birth control because, think about it for a second. Let's just play this out. So if getting married gives you more grace, I want more grace because that gives me more assurance of my salvation even though I can't be 100% sure. But then you don't believe in birth control. So then you start having babies and then as you have babies, you want them baptized into the Catholic Church. And then as they grow up, because you don't want to lose your grace, you want to keep them involved. So then they all go through confirmation. And then you're teaching them these things. And you want them to grow up and to become married. And then they don't believe in birth control. And then you have babies. And then, So really, when you think about it, the Roman Catholic Church, the reason why it's been so successful is because of the seven sacraments. And it has kept people in this system that promotes procreation and further enslavement within the Roman Catholic doctrines. And that's me speaking very bluntly, but it is the truth. When you look at it objectively and you separate yourself from your emotions, that is the truth. And it's very, very sad because there are a lot of people, I know of people, even I've gone over to Ireland several times where I talk with people that are, that are in the Roman Catholic system. And I know that what I'm asking them to do is a lot I mean, think about what I'm asking them when I present the gospel to them. I'm asking them to forsake everything that they have believed about God and the church and about Christianity. I'm asking them to basically be an outcast in their own family and to forsake hundreds upon hundreds of years of family tradition to believe something that their entire family and especially their grandma is going to hate them for. I mean, it's, it's, it's massive. It's not something that's like, oh, yeah, no problem. I'll become a Christian. I'll, I'll become a born-again believer. No, not at all. This is a big deal because this whole system is set up to keep people faithful to the Roman Catholic Church. So when they hear the truth, it can be very hard for them to believe it and accept it and to, to separate themselves from it. And the only way that it's a little bit easier is if the parents or other family members are not faithful in the Roman Catholic Church. That's really the only way. Because, I mean, even, like, Andy's parents, they were involved, but not, like, really. His grandparents were, on both sides, were pretty. His dad's parents were more so. I mean, they, 
Yeah. 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 His mom's parents are Catholic, but make up their own doctrine kind of thing. Yeah. But, I mean, they don't want to have any conversations with us. No. And I'm sure they were pretty upset with Andy when he made the decision to leave the Roman Catholic Church. Yeah. Yeah, he was. Like, you know, their pride and joy. Like, that was, like, a big deal yeah, for them. Yeah, it was. Like, high position for it was. a little kid to have. And yeah. I think that was, like, an anointed position. Yeah, it was. And Andy would tell you uh, the times where he stole um, and drank some of the wine. He actually went. He had the priest's garb and went um, after treating the priest's garb and got all muddy. And, <laughs> like, and he had to, like, do penance or something for getting mud on him. Oh. <laughs> Andy, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. 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 Yep, that's Andy Spate for you. That's one of your youth leaders. That's Andy Spate. Yep, that's right. No, he does not care about the, Not when it comes to that anyway. But he's a police officer, so he does care about the rules. Yeah, there you go. Andy. I am the law. All right. Okay, all right. So, uh, so what, what Catholicism believes. So during a wedding ceremony, the man and woman receive additional grace from God for the furtherance of their salvation and the power needed to embark on their marital journey. And participation in the Eucharist is typical during the Catholic wedding ceremony, granting additional grace. Now, getting married does not bestow further uh, grace or salvation upon you. Married or unmarried, having children or having not having children, we have everything we need in Jesus Christ. That is absolutely true. And so here's, and I'll just leave you with this. You had those things that I showed you. But this is what it's like to be a Catholic, okay? So, you're born as a baby, okay? And we'll just kind of, we'll do this. We'll say this is the dotted line between heaven and hell. Well, hold on. Here's purgatory. (laughs) Okay. All right, so you got purg. Purgatory there. And you got heaven. And then you have hell. Okay. So... As a baby, when you're born into this world, you have original sin on you. And so you're starting off right here. Bad place to start off. Think about this. During the times of the Black Plague, guess what would happen? Babies would die like mad crazy. Guess what the moms and the dads would think? Babies in hell. And guess what they would have to do? That was the time where the Catholic Church started popularizing the whole indulgences thing. Well, then you end up paying certain money, and then your baby is going to go to heaven. That's how that old thing got started back in the day. If you researched out and summarized it, that's what it was. So you need to get that original sin erased as soon as possible. As soon as possible, because you have no idea what's going to happen. So that puts them here. All right, now they are born again, and they're in good standing. Now, as you continue down your path of life as a 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10-year-old, and then you reach the, the age of accountability, and which is, you know, you go through the confirmation process. Well, now you're in the process of confirmation, so you're probably down here. And then you continue through the confirmation process, and then you're confirmed. All right, we're good again. And then now you can take part in Mass. All right. And then you have a really bad week where you go and you party and you get drunk with your friends or whatever, and then you sleep with your girlfriend or boyfriend or whatever, and then now you're down here because that's a, that's a venial sin. That's not a venial sin. That's a mortal sin, and now you're running the risk of going to hell. So now what do you need to do? Confess your sins to a priest and do penance, acts of penance. Okay, we're back up again. All right, and then you're going along, going along. All right, you make a giant mistake again because you uh, forged money from whatever, from the cartel. I don't know. I don't know. I'm just making up on the spot, people. And so something happens when you're down here. All right, what do you need to do? 
confess. All right, and then you were semi-sincere, so you landed in purgatory, and so you have to come face to face with that, and then you confess it, and then, all right, we're back up again. Okay, so this is the life of a Roman Catholic. They have no assurance of salvation. They have no assurance of salvation. Their salvation is completely dependent upon them, what they do and what they don't do, and their loyalty to the Roman Catholic Church. That's really how their salvation is defined. And that is not what the Bible says. The Bible says very clearly that once you are saved, you are born again, you are sealed into the day of redemption, you could walk away from this church and spend the rest of your days living like the devil. And when you die, you will go to heaven. Now the problem is while you're living like the devil, you are going to be the most miserable person on the face of the earth because you are sealed by the Holy Spirit of God and he is going to be constantly convicting you and driving you to the point where you need to do something to get right with God. So I don't buy it when people call themselves Christians and they do things that are not godly and they don't feel bad about it. When God's not convicting the snot out of them, they're not willing to deal with their sin. They can do that for a little while because I've done that for a little while in my life. But it drove me to the point where I'm like, I can't keep living this way. I'm going to go insane if I keep doing this. And then it breaks me and that's what God does to break me. And if I'm not willing to be broken, then he humiliates me into the point where I'm ready to be broken or he's just going to have to take me home. He's going to have to end my life and take me home. So that's what the Bible teaches. All right, any questions on that? Okay, once again, these things that we teach on this stuff is not for you to go and combat people. It's for you to love them and find ways to minister to them. It's for you to know where they're coming from and what kind of systems they, they live in. Because when I went to school, I don't know if it's this way with you guys, but when I went to school, most of my friends were Catholic, most of them. And sometimes it was really hard to have conversations with them. So knowing some of these things helped me. And like in the case with Andy, I ran across with him where he's Catholic and I knew more about what he believed than he did. And I was able to talk to him and share what the Bible says. And then he became interested and came to church and got saved at one of our winter camps up at Stony Glen. And now he's one of your youth leaders. So take advantage of the opportunities you guys have. Know what you believe and why you believe it. And just love people and look for open doors. All right? Okay, two weeks from now we're going to start the series on Judaism, and uh, we'll go from there and keep trudging through. And we're going to be talking about, um, you know, Charismatics, Pentecostals. We're going to be talking about our Baptist history. We're going to be talking about uh, all the different denominations of Christianity. We're going to be talking about Muslims. We're going to be talking about Jehovah's Witnesses, which I refer, refer to as J-dubs, um, and Mormons. Um, what's that? Where did you get J-dubs from? J-dub, J-W, Jehovah's Witnesses. Because whenever I see their material, it says J-W. And so I just call them J-dubs. I think it's more attractive. <laughs> All right, let's go ahead and pray. If you have any questions, you can ask me later. And, uh, and if um, maybe there's someone that you think should listen to this podcast, I'll get it up tonight and uh, they can listen to it. Um, it might give you some opportunities too, okay? All right, let's pray. God, thanks for your word. Thanks for giving us some clear direction on what we should believe and how we should uh, live in this world. I pray that you would give us open doors to uh, talk to people about the truth, that we'd be able to love people, and um, to talk to them about what the Bible says and what they need to do in order to be saved. Because it really is simple. We just tend to complicate things when it comes to our, our the way we want things to be, the things that we make up in order to be right with you. It just we make a mess of things. So I pray we would just believe you and do what you say. Thanks for loving us, God, the way that you do, and thank you for being so patient with us. I pray you give us wisdom to make good decisions the rest of this week and that we'd be thinking about each other and be praying for one another. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.